Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Leadership, a podcast for leaders everywhere doing their best to learn and lead in a rapidly changing world with your host, Helen Woodward. We're here to share leadership learning from everyday work and research, helping leaders and teams be their best. So wherever you are when you listen, I hope you find something to make you smile, a new insight and a question to think about. So let's talk leadership. Hello and welcome to this next episode of Let's Talk Leadership. I'm delighted to have with me today my guest, Alan Seeler. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Helen. Alan, you're an author. You're a leadership and ontological coach. You previously worked as a teacher and a professional cricket player in Lancashire. So tell us about your early life and where you grew up and how you first came to come to the UK to play cricket. Tell us about that bit, first of all. Oh, okay. Um, well, briefly, I was I was born in Sydney and I had eight years there and then my father got transferred in a bank to Fiji in the Pacific Islands and we lived there for two years and then came back and moved to Melbourne. Um, sport was always part of my family. My grandfather actually captained um, Donald Bradman when he was 16 um, in the representative game and my father was a very good tennis player. We played Davis Cup for Australia, and my sisters on stage got ranked to be number 16 in the world, women's tennis. Wow. And um, this lovely Fijian guy taught me how to score and, and it kindled my interest in cricket and played that for many years. And after that, I switched over to baseball and thoroughly enjoyed playing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a sport for me to do many people in uh, lots of different parts of the world, but it's a, yeah, a sport that I, I fell in love with as well. <clears throat> That was a big part of your life early on. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a big part of my how I identified myself, and often for worse because you didn't go very well. You know, you, I get caught up in thinking I wasn't much good as not just as a as a player, but as a person. Um, which is now I think a big part of what they call the mental health of sports people these days. Um, and of course, in those days, you know, you, you got very little in the way of anything like personal development. It was all focusing on the technical skills of the sport rather than what some people used to say, you know, the game's played as much <clears throat> out on the field as it is between your ears. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Did you ever manage to break a cricket bat or was that just like beyond what you could do even with a temper? Uh, through a couple in the time, I got out. Couple of times in um, first class cricket for '97, much to my disgust. I remember one bat went hurtling down the stairs at a dressing room. But uh, no, I was, I was much more mild mannered as a cricketer. I think if you play a team sport, uh, there's no room for the, not a lot of room for tempestuousness. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the team sport was good for you. Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Very good. Okay, and then following this, you went into teaching. So tell us about your early career there. I was quite interested in the possibility of being an academic, but I could see looking into it, it was probably going to be a pretty dry life. But I was always interested in intellectual challenges. And then one day, ironically, when I was waiting to bat in a game, I, I, I was reading a book called How Children Learn. And I was totally absorbed in it and how, how different it was to conventional education and how you know really starts with the child and engaging with the child as a person and their interests and you know, not so much trying to impose a curriculum on them. And um, I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. It just I felt I don't know whether it was 
some kind of spiritual thing almost about wouldn't this be a great thing to do, you know, to get joy from helping people learn. So, um, yeah, I, I followed up because I, I, I was doing a, um, uh, I was doing what in our system was called a Diploma of Education, which would qualify me to teach. And, um, yeah, the first school I taught at, I got into all sorts of trouble because I didn't follow the requirement that the kids call me by my first name and have them doing projects and when they should have been working out in the textbook and giving presentations to the class. And <laughs> I was sort of very nicely booted out, what they called in those days, made in excess of those uh, okay. requirements. But then fortunately I found um, a little school that was an annex to a large uh, high school that was running on alternative lines. And the guy there who started it was just fantastic and we hit it off really well. And I spent 14 years working there, working very closely, uh, running a school along the lines of wanting to involve the kids in the design of the curriculum around their interests, as well as making sure they had the standard maths and literacy and literacy skills. Um, hard work, a lot of what we call pastoral care work, a lot of students who had not succeeded in mainstream school, but were very smart and intelligent. And uh, I, was, I got really curious about how do you connect with these kids. And one of the things I learned out of all that, well, it's not just sort of having particular, let's say, teaching skills. It's about how I was as a person. So that got me interested in my own personal development and sort of the importance of sort of relational and communication skills, both uh, in ed education settings and, and in general. And then the path along led along many explorations, and one of the key ones, of course, was when I landed in ontology. And, yeah, when I came across it, I thought, wow, this has had much more substance and depth of other things that I investigated quite, quite extensively. I thought, yeah, there was something here I hadn't encountered before, and I something went off inside me. Again, it might have been like a little spiritual awakening. <laughs> it was like it was, the, the, the sentence was, now I know what I want to do when I grow up. And, uh, yeah, I'm still learning, still learning from this approach and just loving it and inspired by the people that do courses and what they go and do with it in their lives and how they improve the lives of others. Very blessed. Mm, okay. So what was it that you cared about so much that led you into your research on ontology with such great depth and rigour? Mm, I think a great question. Um, I, I think from my, my time in education, I it was always a tragedy to me to see students, you know, say kids, you know, who you knew were intelligent, but the school system was actually failing them. They were failing the system. And you could see they were going to go out into the world as young adults. And a lot of them were very embittered and didn't feel respected at all. And that was going to be a cost of society. And I think I really felt for what was going to happen to the quality of their lives. Um, surely there must be a better way here. And even though I didn't come across ontology until I'd actually left the classroom, I think in my own way I was trying to connect with people as human beings. I remember, I can't remember the author, but you know, an author I was drawn to said, "You don't, you don't teach curriculum, you teach people," and um, and that was great. And then then I came, you know, what I came across was that the original meaning of the word education from the Latin educare, uh, which means to draw forth, you know, to bring forth, to bring out into existence what's already within someone. And I thought, yeah, all, all of schooling is about putting into kids. And so it's a whole thing about I don't think we're really honouring people 
people's people and they're, let's say, they're a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but they're learning potentialities. And I could see how that was happening with adults, you know, in all areas of life, including, you know, people who struggled as parents and hadn't got any support for that area. So I thought if I could find a way to, that was really practical but had some meat to it without being too academic, that people could actually grab onto and keep using all the time, um, that would help them build better lives for themselves. And that's that's what I think I, without articulating it that way, that's what I saw in ontology because I, I gained so much myself from it. Okay. So it was about noticing that what was being offered to the young people wasn't perhaps serving their needs, wasn't meeting with them, wasn't helping them be the best they could be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And if we talk about the development of a, a society as a whole, you know, how much better we'll be as a collective, you know, a people collective if, if we can really find ways to help people bring the best out of themselves. I, I just think of the unnecessary suffering that so many people seem to go through because we just haven't, I think, provided the environments for them to find out, you know, more about, not just more about themselves, but what they're capable of. Mm. Okay. So you're hugely well-read and you've got four books published now uh, with extensive references um, and research. How did writing your first book come about? Yeah, I hadn't planned it. So for the the 18-month coach training course that I run, I I had written uh, the papers for that. But I'll go back a little before that. One of the people I learned from, a guy originally from Chile, Rafael Echeverra, my Spanish I call it Spanish. Um, he had written a book in Spanish. So I thought, oh, fantastic. I'd like, I'd, and it was going to be translated into English. And I thought, oh, great, I'll use his book, uh, buy multiple copies. And then it turned out there was a whole copyright issue. Um, he developed it in a particular company structure. And so it actually couldn't be translated into English. And um, I had written a whole lot of uh, papers for our 18-month course so about sort of maybe eight to ten thousand words per paper and then one day I was just sort of flicking through and I thought oh yeah I reckon I'll turn, turn this into a book um, I thought oh there's probably two books there and then I read the set wrote the second as I was writing the second book I thought no no there's way more to it I'll the third book and when I finished the third book I thought well I really need to put it all together with a bit more strange than they seem a bit more depth so then I put together the fourth book so, I don't know, it's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question, but it actually came out of the writing the material for the 18-month coach training course. Yeah, that's what I'm getting, that actually you didn't set out to write a book, you set out to develop the training programme and the book followed the works that you'd done for that. So that's, yeah. that's, well, that's really interesting. So you, you still work as, as well as doing your training programmes, which are many and extensive, you're still working, I know, as a, as a leadership coach. So why is the ontological approach so valuable in leadership coaching? And what's, what's different about it to the kind of coaching? Because lots of people talk about coaching, right? But, but mm. it's quite confusing to know what they mean by coaching. Yeah. So what's different about the ontological approach? And there's a number of sort of ways of trying to explain that. I'll just try and do it in a kind of a sequence of points. I think the only place any of us can operate from is what we call our way of being. Now, in a nutshell, this is, if you like, our often deep-seated perceptions and attitudes that we've learned in the process of growing up about 
who we are, what, what, what life is, what's good, what's bad, what's okay, what's not okay, and what's possible for me. The other thing I think is that um, a way of being, and we've got a very strong biological basis for this statement, our way of being is where learning and change happen at a deep level. Uh, so it's all, it's all connected, in, I'm going to say this in a broad sense, to the nervous system, and there's many different parts to the nervous system. So that's the first thing. Leaders can only lead from their way of being. And, and many approaches seem to focus on, like, let's say, let's learn new skills and techniques, you know, five ways to have a difficult conversation, five steps to follow. Um, can be important, can be very useful. But what it can tend to miss is, do we have some underlying perceptions and attitudes that won't allow us to, let's say, activate these skills in the heat of the moment? When someone shifts their way of being, they perceive the situations they're in very differently and they become almost immediately capable of behaving and communicating more effectively. They often don't need to be shown any skills. That, I think, is a very important difference that we're focusing on the way of being of the leader um, and how that's the source of, of what we consider to be deep, often very constructive change. The other thing I think that distinguishes the ontological approach to leadership is our focus on what we call conversational beings. So the essence here is that humans are conversational beings. We get things done and we create the future through conversations. We can only converse from our way of being. And the quality of a leader's conversations plays a huge role in the effectiveness of their leadership. Because they can only, a leader can only get things done through others, so they have to interact with them, engage in conversations, So the quality of those conversations is going to determine what's done, what's not done, how well it's done, and the, un, the leader's underlying way of being that they're conversing from all the time is going to influence the quality of their conversations. And I, what I think we have in ontology is, you know, I'm quite comfortable to say this, is, is a a discipline and a robust methodology for how to have greater flexibility and versatility in the way we engage in conversations. Okay, that's very helpful. And I'm and whilst I'm listening, I'm thinking about what I've read and some of the work I've been doing with you on the on the program that I'm currently on with you. And and also I, I guess for listeners, I want to really encourage people to, you know, start reading around some of this because there is so much out there and Alan's giving us a a little summary here, but do start digging around in some of this and have a read around because there's there's some great work to be accessed here, uh, which can really help you think and observe the world and what you're doing really quite differently. Um, so I'm going to encourage people just to just to hold the space open with some new ideas there um, and do a bit of digging around before you before you make a decision on what you think about it. Um, Anna, let me ask this. This is a bit of a this is a bit of a cheeky one, really. But I know from reading your books, you've had and do have some very successful coaching conversations. All right, but I want to ask, you know, have you ever had any where it was just really unsuccessful? I, I think in the early days there would have been of coaching of sort of getting getting my feet wet. Um, I'm sure, I, I know I had one quite a few years ago with a guy. Just had one. And, and his wife was actually doing the 18 month course and she'd recommended him to me. And we, we finished up and I thought, 
thought that was pretty useless for him. You know, he, he caught much from it. And probably about seven or eight months later, I just said to her, I said, oh, I'm not sure how that conversation was for, you know, husband said his name. I said, yeah, yeah, I didn't know it was going to be really helpful. She's looked at me in surprise. She said, oh, no, she said, she, she said, he reckons that's the best thing he's ever, that's ever happened for him, you know. Doesn't directly answer your question, but as a coach, sometimes you just don't know. It's easy to think you haven't done much, but you never know what little seeds might have dropped for the person. Um, but to try and answer your question a bit more directly, I remember there was one conversation where it didn't go as well, and I was really annoyed with myself afterwards. And the, the, the client was the head of private wealth in one of Australia's major banks. So you can imagine the kind of world that he's operating in. Yeah. And he sat behind his desk and I sat the opposite side. And, and as a coach, I, I, you know, I realised I allowed that to happen. It was a big learning for me because basically I think he was wanting to control the conversation and I, I led him up to a point. And um, I thought that's how people get to the top in the corporate world. They learn to control situations and manipulate in different ways. And I don't know what his interest is in coaching. I mean, he, he said he had a, he wanted to develop his team better. And yeah, I walked away and I was absolutely furious with myself. And also I realised I'd been too quick, I think, introducing what I thought was a very important mood that he was living from mood of anxiety and I thought I hadn't actually prepared the ground for him for that so in a sense you know he kind of, he didn't really buy it he batted it away as a possibility and when I went back into his office I, I stood in front of his desk and gestured to a meeting table and chairs he had the other side of the room and I, I just said to him as I gestured would you mind if we sat over there today they said oh sure you know so we went over there and we sat down and for me, we had a much more productive conversation that got into the specifics of his team, how he was relating with them, how he thought they might be perceiving him, what could be missing for them in the way he was functioning. So I, I, I think I helped him get much greater insight. Mm. I, and I realised in the first one, big learning for me was I was intimidated by my perception of his status. Just run that one by me again. Yeah, I was intimidated. I allowed myself to be intimidated by my perception of his status. This guy's a corporate high flyer. In the background, I re realised I always had a little narrative and I'd only been a teacher. Okay. And that's what I, what I really picked up on what you've said there. You, you didn't say I was intimidated by his status. You said I was intimidated by my perception of yeah. his status. I allowed myself, yeah. yeah. I didn't put myself on an equal footing with him as a human being. Yeah. It was a huge learning for me because what I realised later on, he knows about all sorts of stuff in the world of finance. He doesn't know about way of being. He doesn't know about coaching yeah. without me being any expert, right, but I do, you know. And what I wasn't doing was, was what I call holding my authority as the coach. He's asked me to be a coach to him, so... Own it, own your authority without being overbearing. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, you know, that bit of learning with us, actually, because when I started this podcast, something I really wanted to do was, was not just talk about the good stuff, but talk about the stuff that was actually a bit kind of tricky and where we've learned. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. No, and there's been other instances. I, I remember I was someone actually in the coach training 
they brought an issue forward. And I kind of launched into a particular approach and then they were really great. They, they said, look, I'm sorry, I actually don't feel taken care by you in this conversation. I went, oh, yeah. And they, I hadn't actually got her explicit permission to pursue the conversation. I, I just assumed we're in this group setting where people share and there'd been some great sharing by people. People are always vulnerable and make sure that you take care of them. Yeah. Um, and actually, what fantastic feedback that person gave. I was. It was. You know, I was very, I mean, it felt really awkward at the time, but I was very grateful. Mm. And it was a fantastic learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. So right early on, we talked about um, the whole kind of assertion within ontology that we all act according to our concerns. What do you care about now? Well, where I'm right now with my son and his family in Germany, so I really care about them and the the lives of my four Mm. grandchildren. Um, There's the whole people side of things in my life, my, my partner in Melbourne. I think... I probably have to ramble a bit to try and get to this, but one of the things I care about is, you know, wanting to create more opportunities for people to learn about the ontological approach without it becoming a cult or anything like that. Because, I, I mean, I've been doing this since 1995. I've just said what a thrill it is when people go and change their lives. Mm. So I suppose at a deeper level, I really, really care about people living better lives for themselves, not just for them, but, but how their relationships, their families, their workplaces benefit because we don't have to look too far to see just how much suffering there is in the world. A lot of material and financial impoverishment of people, but amongst those of us that are materially and financially reasonably well off, there's a lot of emotional, mental suffering that's going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the midst of you know, affluence that wasn't around in our parents' or grandparents' time, but maybe. We wonder, were they really better off than us mentally and emotionally in some ways? Mm. So, yeah, I just think about, look, if I can just chip away and connect with people and they want to learn at a deep level and then how they can go out in the world and, and do likewise with others, that, that's a key thing for me that I care about. Mm. Okay. And that's absolutely, I mean, seeing, I think I was astonished the other day when I saw just how many programs you're running internationally. Um, that absolutely is evident from the work you're doing, just how, how much you do care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that leads me on to the next and, and final question, really. I often think about legacy and the legacy I hope to leave. I'm always mm-hmm. conscious that our time on this planet is short, you know. Um, what do you hope your legacy will be, Alan? Oh, look, definitely the books, Helen. I mean, that was probably the... And, you know, I read the I wrote the books for marketing purposes. You know, probably more important was actually learn my own learning. I thought, yeah, if these I wanted to write them so that they would be timeless. Someone could pick a copy up in 2058 and it would still be relevant. And then yeah, I just I hope that I part of my legacy will be be some influence on other people in terms of how they can live their lives and how they can how they can work with others and help others' lives uh, be better for them as well mm. yeah and recognize you know it's like we've all got we're all going to be limited in in how we can hopefully be a constructive influence but if as i say touch the life of one or two other people and it makes a big difference in the world well we can die happy that's lovely thank you that's really lovely uh, adam we're, we're just coming to the end of our podcast i'm just wondering if there's anything else that you wish you'd had a chance to say or anything that you wanted to just share with listeners um, because I know there will be lots of people wanting to hear what you've said today. 
Oh, thank you. But a couple of things occurred to me what you talked about reading on on the Ontological Coaching Institute website. There's, there's, I think we've got about 90 articles there now, quite a few written by graduates about their applications. And I'm still fascinated with this work and continue to research it. And I'm hoping I can eventually put together another couple of books. They're pretty sketchy at the moment. Um, one on sort of more advanced ontological coaching and the other one, I think, going further into the, the philosophical depths that underpin this work. So I think there's a lot more richness there that we, we can bring to people as coaches. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think all that remains for me to say now today, Alan, is thank you so much for joining us today on Let's Talk Leadership. Well, thanks, Alan. It's been really wonderful to have a conversation. I much appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Leadership. For more, head over to HelenMGConsulting.com and find out about leadership programs and leadership coaching, helping you and your team be the best version of yourselves.